Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. I'm so excited. We have such a wonderful show for you this evening. Alan Schrader, founder, president, and CEO of Lightspeed Aviation, is here with us tonight. And I have to tell you, uh, anytime that, that we combine both uh, a unique story about a very inspirational individual with getting to talk about product and getting some behind the scenes technology uh, that that just puts it all together for someone who likes to kind of geek out like me on what's new and great about general aviation. Before we get started, a couple quick things just about what's going on as we start to go, go into the fall season, especially for those of us in the northern parts of the country and the leaves are, are about to change and, and temperatures are changing. We are seeing the last of the big fly-ins happen up here and there are so many things happening. So I just want to encourage everyone to go and open up socialflight.com or the free Social Flight mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. There are tens of thousands of aviation events and destinations happening. You can find any place that's got a uh, $100 hamburger, a restaurant, anywhere you can walk to from an airport just by the click of one button. And we have the Fly to Win Challenge happening, which means if you have the mobile app, all you have to do is fly in any airport you land at. As long as you've uh, launched that challenge within the app, it'll give you points for landing. And the best part is you only need to get points once in order to be entered into win our grand prize. If you do happen to make it to the top 30 on our leaderboard, you get extra entries, which increases your chances of winning. And that prize, well, very appropriately, it's a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset that we're currently giving away. So uh, get out there uh, and uh, check it out. You're going to absolutely love it and enjoy some more flying. Now, a little bit more news, of course. We have launched our Social Flight Live podcast, which means all of our shows. That is approaching 150 shows in the past. We are rolling out through a podcast, through Apple Podcasts, through Google, through uh, Napster, all the different uh, sources. Wherever you get that, if you're in the car and you want to learn a little bit about general aviation and follow this story, just do a search on Social Flight on your service, uh, just one word, Social Flight, and you'll get that podcast. We also have our Social Flight's FAA Learning System, where our partnership with the FAA, and you can get WINGS and AMT and even IA Renewal Credits. It's all there. It is all free, and we created it for you. Now, with that, I'd like to talk about our guest a little bit. Alan Schrader is the president, founder, and CEO of Lightspeed Aviation. He's been the primary driver of headset design and product innovation for nearly three decades with a focus on design elements that enhance comfort, safety, and the overall user experience. 
Lightspeed Aviation has become highly respected in the aviation community, largely for its innovative products and its way of doing business. And we're going to talk about that, which really involves community and everything else about the, the, the world of being a Lightspeed customer. He's a helicopter pilot, a soccer player, an outdoor enthusiast, and someone deeply involved in family and giving to the world around him. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Alan Schrader. How are you doing this evening, Alan? I am well, Jeff, and, and congrats to you on continuing to expand the kingdom of outreach that you do with, uh, with Social Flight. I mean, it started out as just trying to give people places to, to go fly, to go do something, and it's become a whole community. And you, you know, you've really shepherded that through the beginning times to something that's massive, and a lot of people use it. So congrats to you. Well, it's very, very kind of you to say, and we appreciate light, uh, Lightspeed support, of course, in making all of that happen. And uh, I've always felt there's a there's a kindred spirit and community between the way that um, that everything seems to run at Lightspeed in this family kind of way, and and what we've always been trying to accomplish at our mission here at Social Flight. Well, great. No, it's um, I think we each get to to some degree script the way our business grows and and the, the DNA and the who we are that flows out to our customers. And again, I think um, your customers experience you as available and energizing and giving them opportunities to do cool stuff. And that's, uh, that's, that's great. It's a great gift to them. So use the word DNA. And, and I want to I start there because um, I, I have to say, it, it's a treat every time I get an opportunity to interview someone who is a founder of a company in the general aviation space, because founders have this very unique way of bringing who they are to the business, and it just stays through the whole life of the company. And so I'd like people to know a little bit first about who you are and what your background is and how someone goes from, you know, from zero to, you know, un, to, to becoming, deciding, I'm, I'm going to start a headset company in general aviation. Well, well, thanks. And that was, that was a lot of years ago. I think uh, as, as we've talked, I, I first was involved in a startup that was involved making intercoms. And then we, I started learning how to design headsets because headsets were good things to build your, your intercom business. And uh, but that all happened uh, really in the late 80s. Let me take a few minutes just to acquaint people with my my journey through life before I sort of got into business because I was uh, I was born in Ohio, spent most of my years uh, in the greater Cleveland area. My dad, for three years, we lived in Brazil and Sao Paulo. And so I got some international exposure, which was great. I got to travel a little bit, which which I love and I still love to do. But eventually returned, graduated high school in the suburb of Cleveland, went to Cornell University, got an engineering degree, uh, worked for three years actually in the welding industry, learned how to weld and worked as a salesman in that industry before going back to business school. And so then I came out to Oregon in 1981 uh, after graduating from the Darden School at the University of Virginia. So that's sort of a quick 25, six year fast forward through that uh, along the way. And, and, and once I got out here, one of the great joys and blessings of my life is my wife, Judy, who's a, a long time, uh, a, a lifetime co-journeyer, I call her. We've been married 35 years and I have two kids who thankfully are, are living independently. So that's a, that's a mark of something good. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, I, you know, I try to stay active, although the business is, is probably as much a mistress as and more mistress than it should be in my life. But, um, I still play soccer, which I love, and uh, walk five miles a day, and I, I love to travel. I've been to all but one state, 
49 states. I got to get to North Dakota sometime along the way here. And almost as many countries just over all the years from a business standpoint and personal pleasure standpoint. So um, that's, it's a good thing I enjoy traveling because in this business and being the leader of the business, you got to travel a fair amount. So, uh, so yeah, that's sort of my story getting me out to, um, to Portland, Oregon. And, and the last sort of really central thing, which you'll see sort of bubbling up at various times is that in 1980, I gave my life to Jesus and, and because of that, it's been this ongoing challenge and joy of trying to figure out how to walk out the purposes he's given me. And so that's, that, that, that shows up in various parts of my sort of adult DNA, which we are starting to talk about. Absolutely. So tell me how aviation became a focus in that. How did that step into the equation? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And the, you know, the truth is that I, I didn't start out with any aviation passion or really, frankly, even any aviation knowledge. Uh, when I came out to Oregon in 81, I started working for a, a large electronics company called Tektronics and was really involved in operational things um, and, and became, uh, spent two years embedded in an engineering team, which I think probably got my engineering curiosity and juices going. Although my, my VP of engineering, I remind him that I'm just a dangerous engineer who has ideas that should be able to get done. But of course, they never get done as fast or as simply as I think they should. Uh, but but I, I had a really good mentor in my job at Tektronics. That guy left in 1988, left Tektronics, and helped a guy move an intercom business out of his house. It was just a one-man proprietor. And so off he went to do that. And within a few months, he called me back up and said, hey, the operational side of this thing is, is really a mess. And so how about you and I take a trip to Asia for a week and let's see what's going on. And we returned with the conclusion that it, it, it is and will be a mess unless we do something very different. And so he said, hey, why don't you, why don't you join me? You join me in this company. And so that company is a name people would generally recognize, Flightcom Corporation. Uh-huh. Flightcom used to be Oregon Avionics, Oregon Avionics, yeah, uh, before we changed the name to Flightcom. And so for the next five years, I was involved with them learning about the pilot market, right? We made, we made avionics. We started designing headsets, first a Clark clone one, and then I got a chance to design a couple other headsets. And that was kind of fun. And, you know, that's was, all trying to figure out intercoms, what happens, right? Was it Flightcom was a lot of intercom type stuff? I seem to recall that name around that. Yes. Yeah. And so Flightcom was an intercom company that, you know, if, if you're an intercom company and you think there's an opportunity to expand your business, you know, you ought to think about making headsets because it says plug into intercoms, right? So you can leverage your brand. You already know a lot about how that's going to work. And so we, I dabbled in making a few, a couple different headsets uh, beyond just the Clark clone ones that everybody started to make at that time. There was no active noise reduction at that time, although it got introduced a couple of years before I, um, before I left that company. And I left because my mentor that I had mentioned, he had left that company. And so he had started up another company and kept pestering me to help him with parts of, of that, the sourcing and operations. And so ultimately, at the end of 1993, I went over and joined him at a company called Lightspeed Technologies. And yes, that's a part of where we got the Lightspeed name in our business. But again, we were at that point making um, sound reinforcement equipment. We were making primarily microphones for singing and speaking, so auditory things. Uh, first for 
or the regular things you'd think of lapel mics and, and that kind of stuff. But then, then we, we evolved into uh, an area that had a lot more passion to it around reinforcing teachers' voices in classrooms so kids could hear. And so that whole classroom reinforcement and amplification business became ultimately what Lightspeed Technologies did. Uh, but in year two of being there, oh, go ahead, you had a question? No, that's absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, I didn't realize that the Lightspeed Technologies side was so educationally focused. Yeah, yeah, it's not surprisingly, if you could raise the level of the teacher's voice above the rest of the level of the sound, you teach kids could hear better. And if kids could hear better, you'd be not shocked to, to know that they could, they could learn better. And so that was a movement that quietly started in the 80s and into the 90s. And so we, we as Lightspeed Technologies were among the leaders in sort of pushing that thing forward. Uh, and it was, it's it it cool business and very much a, you know, a heart, a heart kind of business because you're helping kids. And that's, yeah. that's, that's good. Um, but the, first, the second year I was there, uh, a guy that I had met who was a supplier of mine to the first business, um, he came to me and said, hey, you know, you know how to make headsets because you've designed them before. I've got a factory I'd like to start to fill up. And I know a guy who can do this new technology called active noise reduction. And there were not very many people who knew how to do that well at the time. And, and Ed had, had, had found Mike. He said, the three of us ought to get together and we ought to design a whole new a and headset and, and, and go into the market. And I said, well, that's a good idea. I mean, I said, I'll help you design the headset, but the fact is to build a brand will take a really long time. So I'll help you design the headset and then you can, then, you know, you can have the headset and go to companies that are in aviation that don't have a and headsets yet, right? And, and sell them on the concept of that. And you know, I was shocked as heck because I'd only met Ed five times in my life. But he said, no, you know, I want to do this with you, Alan. And so, um, so I don't care. It'll just take longer for us to build a business. And, you know, let's, let's do it together. And I said, well, okay, I mean, I'm in. Uh, so over the next then two years, we sort of did the design of what became the 20K. A light, a light silver colored headset. Probably a few people in the audience actually had them. You and I talked about the fact that you jumped in in the XL series, <laughs> which was the next one to follow. But um, so, so there I was in 1996 uh, in Oshkosh in a 10 foot booth in the South Hangar, which by the way was that was the first year that the big hangars opened up. So being in the South Hangar was no longer cool. Everybody would move to the big hangar except for there was room in the South Hangar. But 10 foot booth, and you know, I had a product, an AR product, and I started showing it to people and just doing what you do when you're trying to get in front of customers. And, um, and that really started what I call the light speed who years, because uh, people would walk up and they'd look and, and they'd look at the headset and they'd try it on. They'd say, Yeah, it's good, but, but you know, who, who are you? It sounds like that might have also been the, the kickoff of the time when you would walk through booths at Air Venture and hear that low rumble all of a sudden of like engine noise going because people are demonstrating headset A&R. That was probably, <laughs> I, that, that must be like a turning point in all the hangers. Uh, well, it could have been, it could have been because we were, you know, we, we, those who have been knowing Lightspeed for a long time, we used to take this egg shaped thing to our booth and it would create really valid 
uh, very comparable engine noise. I remember that. Didn't know about active noise. People didn't know, so they active noise passed. Well, what is that? Why is there a difference? And so you'd sit in that booth for a couple, three minutes, and push the button on and off, and then they go, "Whoa, that's a big difference." I remember so that. that. Yeah, we were in the educational mode for a long time, but it's a lot of fun. And so anyway, we were Lightspeed Who for quite a time, but slowly, you know, slowly we began to find people that believed enough in us. And, and I, want, I want to thank any of those who are listening uh, who, you know, who were early adopters of Lightspeed, because I was always so grateful for the fact that you would, you know, you'd sort of look at this and this big bulky headset that was fat with inch and a half ear seals. And, but you tried it on, it worked pretty well, really well, actually. And you sort of went, hmm, well, for 400 bucks, maybe it's worth a flyer. It, and, and, so, it, and it was, and it absolutely was, as I remember being in those days. And I will say you and your headsets are memorialized on my walls from way back then. And my, I have pictures of my kids in those headsets um, uh -huh. as, as well. And um, so help me understand, um, you, when, I know you got exposed to the business end of this uh, during that time. Um, were, you, were you also then becoming more and more exposed or involved? At what point did you become a pilot or take it on from a user perspective to see the need and the use of what headsets mean to pilots? Yeah, what actually took me until 2016 to become a pilot, and even that, I'll become a helicopter pilot, not a fixed-wing pilot. But... I'm sure by then I had hundreds of, of right seat hours because I was doing lots of flying, lots of flying with the test headsets as well, yeah. models that go flying. And, um, and then uh, lots of flying because as I made my friends, they were pilots. So you know, sometimes I got to go flying with them. So that really is, you know, but I think the intensity of testing and retesting products was was a driver in just learning more about what pilots needed. And then, you know, the trade shows. Uh, you would rarely see me in our booth because I would spend my time in the dealer booths because I found that people who came to our booth mostly knew about us and mostly liked us. And they wouldn't really tell us everything that we need to hear about what, how we compared to the competition. Whereas if I stood in the dealer booths working, People would come up and, you know, we compare the different headsets. We had, you know, Brand B and Brand D and others. And, um, and I started hearing a lot of stuff about what they wish they could have, what they liked about our product and didn't like about our product. And so that kind of stuff always fuels um, ideas and opportunities for innovation, which is probably why, you know, we've been able to do that at twice or three times the speed that many of our competitors have done. Well, I remember, you know, early on, those headsets were a very significant departure from what was on the market. I mean, when we think about everything back then, it was so classic, just metal headband, metal, you know, two, two other metal pieces that come up. The, like you said, they were some clone of a David Clark one way or another. Uh, uh, the, you know, the very thin ear seals that wrapped around there and, and had a little foam in them. You had a very dramatic departure from that in... Uh, something that on one hand will look big, right? I mean, no question about it, uh, with it, but had these huge ear cushions and everything else. You put it on and you were like, oh, wow, this is what it feels like when there's a pillow. <laughs> like it's a, it was a whole different approach and also different materials. Um, tell me a little bit about what went into that. How did, how did you evolve there? Yeah, and so... 
Yes, everybody, at least that was piloting back then, was familiar with the Clark and or Clark clone products. Designs were all the same. And I had a chance to experiment with a more comfortable design back when I was in at, at Flightcom, trying to figure out ways to change the ear seal and the side pressure characteristics. Uh, active noise, on the other hand, required you to have a very good seal. So out of that grew this idea of a huge pillow-like multiple layers of different densities of confer foam. And we were the first people to use conformal foam for, for a headset because I wanted to increase the comfort, but I also had to make sure it had the right, had enough clamping so that it stayed sealed so that the A&R worked properly. So that was one of the real challenges. And then I, I hadn't learned enough about the ergonomics of heads to really do the science about what that would take. And so uh, you notice that the ear seals kept getting smaller over the years as we got smarter. Um, but the early ones were, were big. Um, and yes, it was an all-plastic headset design. And, uh, and that, you know, that was something we learned on. And uh, I'll say honestly and a little bit sadly, we learned on the backs of our customers, right? Because we designed this thing. It was kind of the best we knew how to make. But when you get 20,000, 30,000 them out in the field, you, you, know, you start learning a lot about how people use them and the materials and design strengths and weaknesses and some of those things. And so, um, you know, that's really one of the things that started the culture of service that we have at Lightspeed. Um, I, I remember in those early, the 10-foot the, the, the booth in the South Hangar that, you know, that they'd be, I'd tell people, well, we have a three-year warranty on the product. And several of them would kind of jokingly say, well, I, you know, that's, that's if you're around for three years. Um, but our early headsets had a three-year warranty. And, but, you know, as we got more of them out there and more people were using them, then we'd start to see failures of things, you know, on the stirrups or on the headband. Um, and, and so, so once we found out what wasn't working, well, of course, we'd redesign the thing, so we'd mm -hmm. make it stronger. Um, well, you know, the truth is that whole family of products, K's, XL's, and 3G's, all were largely on the evolving big cup plastic model. We were, we were increasing functionality by adding shutoff and then by adding uh, the ability to plug in a cell phone or to listen to music. Um, but as we kept making them and then making the parts better as they were breaking, of course, people would have headsets three years, four years, five years, that uh, would break. I mean, the things that by now we knew would break, would break. And so, so there was no way we were going to charge people for repairing them because we, you know, we didn't know when we gave it to you, but we learned somewhere along the way that that product wasn't as good as it could be. And so mm. I'd say for the first 10 years at least, maybe 12 years, we, we never charged anybody to fix anything um, because we – yeah, it just it just wasn't it wasn't right given everything we had learned, and again, in some cases, learned on them and with them. So, but I, I want to say it's a funny I, outcome, though, Jeff, because we I look back in amazement. We build a reputation as being an amazing company for service, and as you probably can guess, part of the way you do that is to create a lot of service events. <laughs> right? I mean, we we weren't trying to create the service events, of course, but inadvertently we were creating service events and then we were caring for people in ways that, that you know, were, were right and appropriate. And we ended up getting a lot of credit for that. 
whatever. But yeah, these guys are amazing for their service. Um, and so I'm grateful for the legacy. I'm sad for how we built it. But um, but yeah, we've we've since then just made that part of our DNA as we talked about earlier. That you got to treat people in very personal ways. You 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 always get a, somebody answering a phone. No phone trees here when you call Lightspeed because I don't like that. I don't think that's personal, and I don't think that's the way we can engage properly with people who either have a service need or even a buying need. So, I, I have to tell you, as someone who was along for that ride in those early days, who did have some service issues, you know, have issues with, with requiring service, I'm I'm glad that that's the way that it that it actually worked worked out from from this because it everyone I remember talking to who anyone had any of those things. I don't know a single person who said anything negative that I recall uh, in in any of the circles that I that I was in so many years ago, decades ago, um, that had anything negative to say. It was always positive, and it's um, and it's very. I think it's very unique to have been able to build something where the product did require service, and yet people were so passionate about the way that you did that. I, I remember, like you said, they'd answer the first call. It'd be like, well, I can send something right out to you. You're not going to pay anything. It's gonna, I'm going I'm to give you instructions on how to do it, or you can call me and I'll tell you how to do it. Or if you're not comfortable doing it, send them in and we'll do it for you. And I was just like, what? Like, <laughs> it changes well, your whole perspective on all that. And it creates that culture that um, now that you have products that probably almost never require service, um, Yet that flavor is still there, uh, which I don't think you have the benefit of any other way. So I, I, I just want to say that I think that's pretty impressive. Well, uh, thanks. It was it, it it was what it was. I, uh, impressive, unfortunate. Um, so it, but it, it's it's grown into that. And you know, one of the things. So I, I you know, I, eventually we le- I left Lightspeed Technologies, um, and we had incubated the business for a couple, three, four years in that business, and then we started Lightspeed Aviation. Um, and so that happened in the year 2000 and that's the first time I was actually like the president. So then I had to, I had to be in charge of things like, like culture and, and, and direction. I mean, who, who do we want to be when we grow up? If, and as we grow up, we did, but, um, and so service was one of those, this personal, the personal care for people is one of those. And it, it, it really has continued to make a difference even when our products now actually are incredibly reliable. Yeah. So you, I, I want to touch on you. You brought up your faith and, and how that uh, applies to the organization, your personal direction of your life. How did that play in, and does that continue to play in to how you treat your customers and how you view new products and things like that? Does that does that affect your business? Um. Yeah, it does. I mean, so so I think it does. You know, we don't have plaques on the wall that have anything to do with. Um, you know, faith statements or anything like that. Obviously, um, you, you you try to live it out in ways that are infectious or at least impactful for other people in the business. But um, yeah, I think it affected. I think it affects the spirit of our team. Um, you know, the, in, in our early sort of business focus, I said, you know, we're here to serve God, and then we're here to serve our customers, and then we're here to serve each other. And so that was kind of the guiding relational principle about that. And it starts by serving each other. And then 
you can serve the customers well, and maybe somewhere along the way, you also end up uh, you know, serving the purposes that God put you on the earth for. And so I think I've walked that out in general ways. Um, I think I walked that out in some specific ways. An example I'd give you is the, uh, the Lightspeed Aviation Foundation. You know, that's something we started formally in 2010. But in 2008, um, what happened is once we launched the Zulu product at the end of 2007, it was really a transformative product for the market. And so we started getting a lot of 33Gs traded in for Zulus, right? People had bought those headsets two, three years before. Now we have a fundamentally better, more comfortable, more quiet, more beautiful product. And we always have a trade-up program to assist those who had invested us in the past to you know, continue to grow with the innovations we offer them. Because it just seems it just seems right. If you plunk down 600 bucks for a headset and flew it for three or four years and then some really new, better stuff comes out, shouldn't we give you 300 bucks back for it? Uh, and so we do that on a regular basis just cause. But in this case, we start getting lots of these back. And so I thought, aha, what if I gave away active noise headsets to missionary pilots? I didn't, um, they basically never would have those, not at that time in the, in the A&R life cycle. This is, um, yeah, this is 2008. And so, so I got involved with the IAMA and started getting all the organizations to tell me how many, how many pilots they have flying outside of the country in missionary service. And then I arranged to give each of them two uh, refurbished uh, 3G headsets. I gave them two because first off, I know they often have passengers, but frankly, I also gave them two because if, if one of them broke, uh, there's going to be no way they'd ever get them fixed, right? And so I better, you know, better give them two. Um, and so, and plus we had them, right? These things were coming in. So over the next 12 months, we, probably, we gave away almost a thousand headsets. Because, wow. uh, you know, in my, in my world, you, you give what you got. And certainly what I got and what I had was lots of 3Gs. And so for not a lot, I could turn them into great headsets and, and send them out to people. So, you know, I wouldn't say that was something I did because of my faith, but it was something that I did because I felt like it was the right thing to do. Right. So the Zulu itself, that's, uh, I mean, that's, it, it all happened at the same time. And it's so, so wonderful to hear how that, how that played into the, the missionary work that you support and, and, and all of that. And this happened around a revolution of your design, which gets us closer to what I want to talk about also tonight. I want to make sure we have time for, but tell me how you made this, this first, this radical shift, I think it, to a whole different design of headset, all different materials, all different things like that, which then lead us in the direction to the, the thing, you know, I'm dying to talk about. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, I mean, it's pretty simple. We'd already talked quite frankly about the fact that the, we, the plastic headset that we made over a hundred thousand of just, you know, you could try to reinforce this and do this and do this, but it, it you could, I couldn't make it reliable like I wanted it to be. And so, so I started back in 2005 saying, all right, so what if we start with a metal headband instead of a plastic one? So it's a plastic one break. What do we start with um, magnesium sliders instead of plastic ones? Because those break. What if we start with stirrups that are, you know, are glass reinforced and 
And uh, so what if we just change how we do the headband part and headset structure? And then what else could we do that's different and better? Because we had to get away from the big monster sear seals, which we had sort of with the 3Gs. So how do we create better A&R? And that, I won't get into that, but that had to do with putting the ear closer to the microphone and speaker, not further away. The fat of the ear seals sort of the further you get away from those. So to get the highest levels of cancellation, you want the ear to be really close. Um, to make it really close, we made the cups non-reversible. You have a left cup and a right cup because our ears are angled. And so if you're making them angled and you want it really close, you can tuck the earlobe in behind the ear seal instead of having the ear seal go around the ear. And so all of those were things that sort of culminated in a whole different approach to wearability, to comfort, to quiet. Um, and out came Zulu. Well, well, it was certainly a big, uh, uh, certainly a big jump, and and uh, and a whole new materials, and obviously was an enormous success uh, on the market. And so, let's let's get to it. You you just announced this guy right here, right? Delta Zulu, Delta Zulu, Zulu. Uh, um, which is it, it it which has a remarkable number of features in it, um, a very elegant headset. Uh, Tell me about, tell me the, the history of like what went into it. It's, this seems to me like a headset of themes. This seems to me like a headset where there were some major things that you wanted to accomplish. Uh, clearly, wearables and the carbon monoxide, um, hearing and the things that you wanted to do about, about being able to adjust to people, especially in an aging population with inherent hearing challenges in it. Flight, recording of flight data. Um, there's a lot of things that go into this. Did they, were those themes there at the very concept of the headset? Well, sort of yes and no. I'll give you the honest backstory, which is after we had introduced a whole series of products in the 2010 range from Sierra to Zulu 2 to GFX to Tango to Zulu 3. And when I came out with Zulu 3, uh, I had to, you know, I, I knew because of our customer feedback, they had been some, sometimes disappointed with Tango and PFX for various reasons, but it had to be a product that was clearly better than a Zoom 2. So I had some ideas, particularly around the Kevlar cords and changing the ear seals. And so we did that. But then I really was scratching my head, Jeff, saying, wow, you know, I, this is the best headset we've made and maybe the best headset being made. I'm not sure how to make a better headset, right? <laughs> And, and at, at the business level, that can be a little scary because we know the pilot market is not growing. So if we want to grow our business, we really have to be able to move people from the headset they have to a, a better headset, right? But to do that, there's got to be like really a better headset. And we just started making with Zulu 3 a really, really good headset, really quiet, incredibly comfortable, all the features you would want. So, you know, what can we do? To, to, to have somebody who's got the Zoo 3 or even, you know, Bose 820 to cause them to go, wow, this new headset gives me so much more. I need to change. I need to put those in the back seat and, and, and buy some other ones. So there was a business side to it. There was also just a consciousness side about safety things that were gnawing at me. I actually started playing around with the idea of how could we put an SPO2 sensor in an ear cup. And, as you can tell thus far, we haven't succeeded, but 
um, it's, it's something we, we can and should and continue to work on doing because it's an important safety feature. And carbon monoxide, which in the last three years or more has really started to rise up as a newsworthy thing that people talk about. But studied that, found out it was, you know, it's a, it's a bad thing, a dangerous poison that can come in and creep in. You don't know it. And, and it takes out people. Obviously, Dan Bass is a great story of somebody who it didn't take out, but that's the rare one. And so, um, and then my wife also was a part of this journey because she, she had a sudden hearing loss in one ear about eight years ago. And that was, you know, it was kind of a bummer and she couldn't hear well in that ear, but she could hear fine the other. And so life kind of went on. But three, three or four years ago, she had a, a, a somewhat of a hearing loss in the other ear. And so then she had a good hearing age. And wow, you know, it's just such a difficult thing for the person specifically. But obviously, we've got an aging population. We've got some people who already have hearing issues. And so, wow, you know, couldn't we do something about that? And so these ideas just started to accumulate. And then as we looked at, well, how could we do that? What could we do? It meant we had to change our whole platform of electronics. You know, the, the, everything up until now has been really a digital platform with the exception of PFX. I mean, you know, an analog platform. But to do the things with hearing acuity, to do the things to have extra processors that collect data, utilize the data, set alerts, all this stuff. It had to be basically a whole new way of, of providing the electronics. So that's that's not like going from a Zoom 2 to a Zoom 3. That's that's several million dollars worth of work and time, and quite frankly, more than more more than I predicted back when we entered into this, but that's that's probably always the case. Uh, anyway, so no, it was um it was born out of a desire to do something that was significant, not just, you know, we don't, I don't want to make a product that just is painted purple and, and, you know, and then you can merchandise more of them or something. People already have good headsets. They, they need something that is substantially different and better. And if I can't do that, then I don't want to sell it. But, um, but yeah, we began to work on doing some of those pieces and putting those pieces together. And ultimately you end up with El Suzulu. <laughs> So it's it sounds like like safety uh, it's playing a larger and larger role in, in in what you're doing in many of your product designs. It's clearly a big role here, right? Uh, um, in in the Delta Zulu, the the carbon monoxide. I mean, I you, you sent me a pair to to uh, to test and check out. I have to tell you, it's fascinating to see what's happening. Even though I had uh, carbon monoxide detector uh, in the aircraft to actually see what's happening right at your head level, how it varies, what, you know, understand what's taking place and what types of flight regimes uh, are causing it. And it even has has the effect that now um, I'm going to hunt down some of the leaks on the ground that are finding that that I'm able to detect because of that. Um, so it, safety seems to be a pretty big, a pretty big focus for you. Yeah, it, it has become that, and it, it's become that for another reason I didn't quite mention, which is we got involved back in 2019 with a project the Air Force has taken on to develop a whole new helmet, a next-generation fixed-wing helmet. They've been flying the same helmet for 40 years, and uh, so I was asked to participate in, in looking at how we could make better acoustic systems for it, which which I'd love to do. and. <clears throat> I was stunned, Jeff, stunned at some of the facts about our pilots today. With the exception of the F-35, 
no pilots, no crew wear active noise helmets. No active noise in the military. Even in helicopters? Even in helicopters. So they're working from 40-year-old helmets, but with still using passive attenuation. It's just, I I couldn't believe it. Worse than that, though, is that the DOD safety, hearing conservation safety data, suggests that easily 20% of people in, uh, in the higher noise environments, maybe more, um, leave the services with a shifted or complete threshold loss in hearing. And so the people that we asked to protect us, we're not protecting them. And that just brought me to a boil uh, relative to safety and how do we focus on providing products that can protect them better uh, from an attenuation standpoint, but also then can can measure how they're how much they're getting dosed by noise. Are they being overdosed in their flights? And and what can we do about that? And so yeah, safety has become a real passion of mine. And and it, it, it that started to grow really after we started on Delta's loop. But um, but yeah, safety is a key theme. In fact, we changed the, the the vision statement for the company to creating products that protect and save lives because that's you know that's just so much more meaningful i think than making products that people love which is nothing wrong with making products that people love but but we should focus on something that's bigger than that yeah and, and thus thus this safety wearable platform we've designed a platform that isn't a headset anymore i'm trying to get the, the market in the world not to call it an anr headset as much as a, a safety wearable and anr is a part of the features of that product I want to pause on that for a moment because I, I, that I find uh, extraordinarily impactful that you kind of crack the door open on what's taking place throughout the military for their hearing loss and that you're uniquely positioned to be able to do something uh, about that. Uh, I, I knew in advance, of course, with our Titan Mustang, we have the HMOD, the, the Zulu HMOD going right. in, the, the flighthelmets.com headsets and helmets. And as far as I know, uh, you're the only company with Lightspeed that uh, is focused on that, that market, specifically making a, modific- a, a kit for ANR to protect the hearing of pilots who fly with helmets, many of which are are at risk in very loud aircraft, et cetera. It seems like that's just a, a natural progression to this almost kind of shameful discovery about what's happening in the military. Well, yeah, and I think that the real difference is we fly, even the noisy planes, maybe they're between 90 and 95 decibels, sort of A-weighted noise across the total spectrum. And we fly it for, <clears throat> what, an hour, two hours? Um, the safety threshold for eight hours is 85 decibels. So you're, you're 10 decibels, and you probably know that 10 decibels is actually four times the sound pressure energy um, of, of the other threshold. So you know, sound pressure level is at one level at, at 85 decibels. It's four times that amount at 95 decibels. But the military guys are flying for six, eight, 10 hours and flying an aircraft that are five to 10 decibels higher than the 95 decibels that I just mentioned. <clears throat> so they're at eight times the sound energy, <clears throat> excuse me. So it's radically punishing noise environment that they're in for 
very long times. So it's it's a very difficult task, um, but but we got to do something to help them out. I'm going to do wow. something to help them out. Put it that way. <laughs> Well, I'm 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 impressed and thankful that Lightspeed's doing something to try to help that problem. Um, let's go back to the Delta Zulu and how you've mm-hmm. taken that same type of of technology approach, because one of the other areas about this is it seems it seems to be a headset that essentially uh, uh, I'm going to use the phrase meets you where you are. We don't expect you to have perfect hearing. We know that there's going to be, it's not just preferences. There's going to be some, you know, where are you today in the health of your hearing? And, and the headset starts with an analysis, with a test, with a hearing test that then adapts in order to adjust what you hear. That, that seems to be much more than marketing. That seems to be something that that also is about is about health and, and caring for the community and the pilot community. Yeah, no, it it is, and it's it's really cool the way we're able to weave that into you know the digital system. Um, you can many people I'm sure are familiar with the fact that if you're on Pandora, there's lots of places where you can download an app to your phone that you can run music through, where you can set your own uh, treble and bass settings. So a settable Settable audio profile is not by itself particularly unique, although it is helpful in hearing things better. Uh, and most people use that for music, and they enhance the treble and you hear more cymbals and and uh, and flutes and good things like that. Uh, but um, but speech intelligibility is is a key part of what we do, what we need to do, and need to do well. And and so having a way to improve the users intelligibility in, in really obvious ways, particularly if you have a, a reasonable amount of, of, of deficiency and in very specific ways around your deficiency. So you're not just turning the volume up, you're turning up the volume of certain frequencies to match the proper levels of the other frequencies that maybe you hear pretty well at. So um, it is very much a safety focused thing that has and will keep helping People hear better, and if you can hear better, you can fly longer, you can be more relaxed, um, you can enjoy yourself, and fundamentally, you'll be safe. Is, is it a, um, I imagine it, and correct me if I'm wrong, to be a kind of multi-layered approach? Like at one level, you take the hearing test through the Delta Zulu and correct uh, deficiencies as to where you are in your personal hearing. And then on top of that, then you apply what Lightspeed does to focus on uh, boosting certain frequencies for ABM, you'll hear radios did, and, and trying to get rid of other frequencies for engine noise. Is that how it works or is there something different involved? Well, I think you're correct that the two things um, um, contribute to the best result, but they don't really, they don't specifically work together in that, just to be clear mm-hmm. that. Um, active noise as a process improves intelligibility because it reduces low frequency noise and low frequency noise tends to cause the ears, there's a lot of energy in low frequency noise. So the ears shut down some, they don't hear as well to protect themselves from this energy. And when they do that, they also don't hear the higher frequencies as well, which means you just don't hear softer consonant sounds well. And when you hit the button and active noise turns on, you get an intelligibility boost, is what I'm saying. 
Um, mm -hmm. The technology by itself does it, and the better your active noise, the, the better the, the advantages of that of that boosting. Um, but the the hearing acuity part is really just a re-sculpting of what the sound coming up the radio through your cord, how that gets changed based on your tested deficiencies. So that when it comes to you, it comes in a new form mm -hmm. than what it started out through the intercom. And that new form improves your intelligibility for the reasons we spoke about. Makes a lot of sense. Now, the other thing, of course, is that it's very app-driven and seems to be uh, you even say in the app, new features to come, basically, <laughs> as to what's happening. So there seems to be a little bit of, uh, of uh, I always hate to use terms like future proof, but there's a little bit of, you know, looking forward, let's say, um, and, and or more to come involved with someone who gets on board with the Delta Zulu. Can you explain a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I mean, sure. So I think I mentioned earlier, it took us a couple of years to redo and re-architect and repopulate and get parts for and everything else, this whole new digital platform. So the platform's designed to be scalable. It's, it's got an audio processor that processes all the audio, uh, both the A&R audio and in this case, the hearing acuity audio. And um, then it has, it has another sensor data processor that has the capability to process sensor data. And so right now, the only central data it gets is the uh, CO data. And that process is architected in such a way that not only it processes it, it can, it can figure out what it has, and then it can utilize that against a table of alerts that are set to tell you when you want to be told about the various things the sensor is, is delivering. And so, you know, you can see how that could be scaled to other safety sensor features. And I mentioned at the very beginning, talking a little bit about SPL2. That would be a logical one. It turns out to be a difficult one uh, for a lot of reasons of people's uh, own ergonomics in their head and the uh, blood flow through their arteries. And the, you know, there's a lot of things that end up making it more challenging than I thought it was three years ago. Um, I would tell you that originally we were going to, we planned to launch the product with, with that as one of the features also. Um, that became too hard. And, so, and SpO2 being blood oxygen saturation. So if correct. wondering what that and, really and with is. that, you sort of get biometrics for free. But, you know, the one that pilots would most care about, obviously, is their blood oxygen saturation. Right. So, but you can see how a canary alert system, much like the CO1, could be, could be mimicked and used for cautionary and critical uh, SpO2 alerts. And mm -hmm. you can step those at whatever levels you're comfortable with, because everybody's personal physiology changes where your saturation levels might start to affect you. And so, so that's, a, that's an obvious one that's, that's, that's down the road, because there's still a lot more pavement to put down before we can drive that road. But, um, but there are other ways that a, a, a connectable headset can help, help the pilot be more connected into his cockpit. Mm -hmm. Some of those may eventually emerge from the avionics guys who have mm -hmm. a way to deliver information to you or information they may want to have about you. Uh, you could think about uh, spatial 3D audio positioning. If you, if you had sensors that could tell you, you know, you set them when you're looking north and as you move your head around, you're creating data that says you're looking over at 10 o'clock. And so 
if if there's uh, some warning of an aircraft at two o'clock, it gives it to you at four o'clock, right? Because you're looking at ten, and so you get those that information in a way that's more usable to you. Um, now that's something already being done in the military space. That's not any cool breakthrough thing, and I'm not sure how often we're getting planes so close to us that we we want to worry about where they're coming to us. We got ADSB now. So, but, but I'm, I'm just using those as examples of ways that information, we have this preferred head-worn position that we uniquely get to hold and have. And so what are things that we can gather from that that can be injected into the flying scenario that allows pilots to be safer in what they do? So. What, what went into the uh, recording feature, the idea of being able to have the audio from your flight? Yeah, well, you're probably aware that we had uh, an app called Flightlink that mm-hmm. was a wired app for our old generation products. And, um, and it, it's, it's been well used and it's a really good training tool, but it's also not a bad playback tool for folks in high density traffic areas. Um, and so it just made sense to incorporate that into the app. We didn't need another app for that. And it allows for you know, the versatility of recording things if it's for training, if it's for your flying, or you can hook it up and record, you know, some of your GoPro stuff. You can link in your audio directly through, uh, you know, through that. So it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's just another nice feature that was easy to bundle in now. Wow, that's great. And there is one other thing that's uh, fairly unique uh, about what you decided to do this time, this being the control unit on it. Both your cables coming out the same side. Uh, and, and of course, while I have this here, I'll point out that it's got a removable um, a power block that can either be uh, NIC, uh, lithium-ion uh, charging or uh, uh, backup with um, regular uh, batteries that goes into it. But um, what went into that decision to change the idea of going through a, uh, a control unit and instead having yeah, we So thanks. We, we do a lot of focus group work. We did a lot of focus group work um, around Delta Zulu. And you may recall all the way back with PFX, while that box was a monstrous brick, it also had the battery, the two cords coming out the top. And that was something people liked in that. And, um, and certainly in our focus groups, people felt like that was a lot easier to put the control unit somewhere, because a lot of people put it in a, in a pouch, in a map pouch on the side, or, um, and they want to have it easy to route the wires together. Even mm-hmm. uh, this here CPPP, um, seminar slash weekend in Spokane. Yeah, they, they put their, you know, they put their control unit in the, in the armrest, basically. And they, one guy pointed out, it's a real hassle to tape the cord to my box because there's only one place the cords go in and out, right? And so if it's in line, then the one that goes out the wrong way has to go all the way back around. And then I have to close my thing so it's coming out the right place. And so it's, you know, it's not a reason you'd buy a headset because the cords come out both ends. But I think it is an improved feature for users buying an improved headset. Well, it's, it, it, I, yeah, I think it's great. It does allow you to tuck it away. Um, so certainly a, certainly a very, a very cool idea. I, I want to, uh, as we approach the top of the hour, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you think is kind of coming or what the future is. I admire how you and Lightspeed have always wanted to push the envelope, always push the boundaries. You mentioned other headsets some of which uh, you continued, some of which you didn't continue on, but they all had technology that perhaps was ahead of its time or there was some other limiting factor, but I, all, I think they were all fantastic ideas that we want to see 
do you see some of that coming back around? Do you see a, a future, for example, um, the Tango with being wireless? Do you, is, what do you see coming when the technology catches up to, to Alan's desires and wishes? Right. Yeah, well, I think Tango and PFX are the two sort of outliers in what would otherwise have been a pretty successful run of products over 20, 20 some years. You know, PFX, we've largely, we've replaced it and totally jumped in front of it with what we're doing with LTCU. So we did learn things from that, and, and I think we, we made it right and more than right uh, with that product. Tango, uh, it's, you know, there's just a fundamental problem with taking a great wired headset and turning it into a wireless headset, right? Because many, many, too many to count um, pilots that I spoke with you know, basically thought that when they got a Tango, they were going to get something like a wireless Zulu. Right? They knew it looked a little different, but but they loved their Zulus, and now they wanted to go wireless. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of can't be done very well, right? It's have a wireless product, first off, the audio quality will be degraded in some ways because it's not running on copper. Um, to have a wireless product, you need to have a battery up in the headset. So that's going to increase the weight. To have a wireless product, you need to have wireless stuff up in the headset instead of the battery box. Think about everything in the battery box. You'd somehow got to put that in and on your headset. Um, and and so it makes it bigger and heavier and bulkier. I, I want to be clear, though. I, I'm i excited about those things. I view, I don't view those things as as anything negative. I view those things as those are just those are just ahead of their time. So if you take something like Tango, it just means we haven't in, we haven't gotten to the point yet that it's so light that the batteries or that the same way you can charge your phone by just putting it down on something now that you can't have you know powered without a cord or that the technology for the audio being wireless at the same quality as a wired thing just isn't there yet. But but mm, you know you you were you you were pushing in that direction and it seems like that's got to be one of the things you're going to wind up getting to at some point. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a lot more doable. With everything we learned, it's a lot more doable because so much more of the control functionality could be done from an app. Um, so, and and the circuit have shrunk quite a bit. I mean, we probably have twice as much circuitry stuffed into Zulu, as Delta Zulu now as we had in Zulu. Uh, but it all got smaller, so there's room to stuff it. Uh, so those things all help. Those things all yeah. help in making a viable product. Well, I just want to say from a user perspective, from out in the marketplace, thank you for pushing those boundaries uh, in, in all those ways. It, it, it matters. It's fascinating. And, and also to, just to say that at a time right now in the world when there are so many challenges in supply chain, when so many companies uh, talk about having to, to direct all of their engineering resources internally just to redesigning, respinning boards, redoing things just so they can keep producing the same products in such a challenging world market. And, and here you are with something brand new. That's very unique and uh, commendable. Um, just, uh, it's very impressive. Well, thanks. <clears throat> there's, there's obviously tons of things that went into all that. And the fact that it took us longer than we thought actually helped us on the supply chain side. Because we, <laughs> you know, we built some time into the order schedule. Um, 
but no, I'm, I'm really proud of what our team has done and our supplier base has, has helped us do to keep us in stock with Zulus and Sears and still to be able to pull this thing off. And um, we'll see, because there's been an awful lot of demand just in the first, what has it been, two weeks, not even, uh, since we launched the product. So we definitely have a tiger by the tail and we're, we're trying to, uh, to hold them down. So it didn't turn around bite us. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll see. But we're working hard at that, and I and I hope you won't disappoint people. Absolutely. Well, for everyone out there, be sure to go to lightspeedaviation.com. Take a look there firsthand to be able to see what goes into the new Delta Zulu headset. Um, see the features, see everything going on there, and see how some new technology is hitting the market. Uh, in the midst of uh, of lots of uh, continued bad news about supply chain and everything else. And as I understand it, these and Zoo, regular uh, Zulu 3 uh, headsets are uh, in stock. Well, in, not quite in stock. The 3s are, but the, these are rapidly, you know, they, it'll take us probably through the Christmas season with dealers on some form of allocation to make sure that we're getting enough of them out there. We plan to build you know, 3,000 of them, and I don't think that'll be enough um to get us through the christmas season so hopefully um hopefully everybody listening in will will prove me right about that <laughs> place your place your orders yeah right. that's right exactly yeah. that's fine well alan schrader thank you so so much for joining us this evening here on social flight live uh, i'm an enormous fan of, of your story as a founder uh, uh as a company and the values and community uh, that you continue to foster within general aviation Yep. Well, glad to do it. Glad to do our part to make the community stronger, better, and um, and glad to have had an hour with you, Jeff. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for this opportunity too. You're very welcome. Good night, Alan. Good night. Take care. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here for another episode of Social Flight Live. We will be back next week on Tuesday, September 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, with a very fun and informative episode with Don Durston from NASA's Ames Research Center, talking about the X-59 supersonic aircraft, which promises to truly break some boundaries and uh, commercial air travel and what can happen with supersonic air travel without the sonic boom that uh, prohibits uh, that from happening around the world, uh, especially over uh, populated areas. So fascinating things. Be sure to join us next Tuesday. And then also on Tuesday, October 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Top Gun Maverick stunt pilot and aerial coordinator Kevin LaRosa will be here on the show to talk about the making of that epic show. Until next time, of course, thank you again for joining us here on Social Flight Live. Be sure to listen to us on your local or your favorite podcast channel. And I wish you all blue skies.